Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing? I'm really happy to be talking about this with you. I'm glad. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. And I'd actually like to start the episode by just quickly saying that I hope that if you're listening, you're doing well out there. The world's in a pretty crazy place right now. And we certainly hope to keep on producing content that maybe in some small way can uh, help people with what they're going through right now. Yeah. So with that in mind, kind of, today we're going to be continuing our conversation related to Rick's new book, Neurodharma. Particularly, I wanted to wander more toward the deep end of the pool. Mm. In self-help kind of broadly defined, there are a couple of big categories of things that people tend to talk about. One of them is just kind of being happier today. Mm. Another one is improving key skills that lead to more happiness today. And then another big category is things like being successful inside of our relationships, dealing with any concerns that we have around the way that our health looks and feels to us, Mm. and so on. But most of these, I think it's fair to say, lean more toward the present, Mm. and they lean more toward what might be called the fundamental, the kind of underlying, in this moment, basis of experience that most people have of their health and happiness. Mm So I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but I think that most of the content does go into one of those big boxes. And today I actually want to explore the four practices the most that lie toward the end of the book, toward the end of the seven practices that you talk about. They're wholeness, nowness, allness, and timelessness. And here with those practices, it sounds like you're aiming a little bit higher. It's not so much just about like in the moment fulfillment, but really taking a shot at what might be called kind of the highest plausible aim that a person could have around their personal health, happiness, and well-being. And maybe even there's some kind of point way out there where those in-the-moment considerations around health and happiness kind of start to fall away a little bit. Or they start to become a little bit less necessary to your conditioned experience because you're not like (laughs) post-happiness. But, you know, it's a little bit less of needing to be on the front burner of your experience because you're just always in it. You're always swimming in the pool. So why was that something that you wanted to explore, that kind of heights of human potential, particularly given, you know, just looking around at the world right now, a lot of people feel like the immediate house is kind of on fire. Right. So great question. Fundamental. I would say from my background in just wilderness, This metaphor of being on the trail and then what do you do next is just so real for me. You know, you're going somewhere. The where you're going seems worth going to. But most importantly, what's the next step? Hmm. So the frame a lot is, well, wherever a person is in their life's journey, their healing, their their underlying well-being, uh, the longings in their heart when they sit on their couch and the dust settles and even at good moments, they sort of ask themselves, understandably, if people have asked themselves throughout history, is this it? And at those moments, it may be that someone has this tug in their heart that says, hmm, I think there's a little more. Mm. And I want to take that next step in yeah. that direction. So that really brings it in range. So I just want to start there if that's okay. Second, it's understandable uh, and common to set up a kind of dichotomy or choice between grinding it out in the trenches of everyday life or just giving up everyday life, walking away 
finding that cave in the Himalayan foothills and just meditating forever after, <laughs> uttering cryptic pronouncements when reporters or cartoonists show up at your door or the front of your cave, right? And I think that's a false dichotomy because first, uh, as we develop ourselves in whatever feels like the meaningful next step for oneself, becoming a little more mindful, a little stabler in our warm-heartedness, even then in the face of provocation, mm. becoming a little more in the present, a little greater sense of being whole. As people take those steps and develop themselves in those ways, they become observably more able to deal with the crud of life. Mm -hmm. you, you really do become uh, more able to, as it said, walk evenly over uneven ground. Mm. So it's really helpful to develop yourself in these ways that might seem initially esoteric, but they're extremely practical. And if you don't do them for yourself, hey, they're gonna be really useful for the people around you. They need to <laughs> lean on you too, especially in troubling times, Yeah. on the one hand. On the other hand, in the trenches of everyday life, when you're with people who, let's say in a pandemic, are not as alarmed as you think they ought to be, or if you're with people who think you're more alarmed than you ought to be, or you don't know what to do, uh, or you're just grappling with a whole bunch of new tasks you've got to deal with or changes in your own life, well, right there in the trenches is an opportunity for the deepest practice of all. Can I be with what I'm feeling right now most profoundly? Can I draw on resources inside me, especially the deepest ones of all? Can I keep my heart open, even when biologically there's a mm. reptilian tendency to close it up when you feel threatened? Can I keep my heart open and keep my eyes on the sky? You know, my feet on the ground and my eyes on the sky. Can I do that each day of my life? And so the two go together, the deepest practices and everyday functioning. If someone in this life is just fine with being okay and getting to Friday every week with no knock on that and raises a family or has friends or lives in this world and it's just great. I'm fine with that. You know, For those who might want to deepen their capacity to just function in everyday life, this book is chock full of tools for that. Really practical, grounded in science, relentlessly applied. Also, though, if a person says, you know, I'm interested in self-actualization. What in the world was Maslow talking about? What in the world have people been talking about in humanistic psychology or in the human potential movement or flow experiences or even peak experiences? Or if it is meaningful to me, as it probably is to roughly about 50% of all Americans and probably 80 or 90% of all people worldwide, if some form of loosely termed spiritual life is meaningful to one, well, you know, let's really go for it. And mm -hmm. I find that that's super inspiring. So quick summary, what are the last four practices that conclude the book? I've already referred to them. It's timelessness, wholeness, nowness, allness, in not quite the right order, but you know what I mean. Could you give a quick description of all of them? Yeah. The four practices, super briefly, that we're going to talk about here. First, being wholeness. Simply put, it's feeling whole as a person so that you're not divided internally. You don't feel fragmented, and you don't feel caught up in struggles of different parts of you arguing with different parts. And in fact, increasingly, you just have a really comfortable sense 
moment by moment of your consciousness as a whole. I don't mean consciousness in some esoteric sense. I mean your, your mind as a whole, your streaming of experiences as a whole. And neurologically, I'll spare you the details, that does a lot of good things to help you feel centered and happier. Just that. Great. Wouldn't you like to feel whole? Second, receiving nowness. Really coming close to the front edge of now. And when you do that, as we may talk about more later, uh, you're kind of like you're before suffering has much opportunity, before reactivity, before obsessing or ruminating has so much time to sink its roots into you. You're just kind of hanging out. And with that comes this sense of delight almost, even if what you're hanging out with sucks. Mm -hmm. But weirdly, it sucks. And there's this almost childlike sense of not knowing, um, beginner's mind, delight, uh, a sense of awe at the amazingness of the presentation of the universe in this moment locally, as crummy as it is. Still, that's a way to um, bear and cope with more effectively what you're dealing with, to come in the present about it. So you're not going into mental time travel. You're not wandering away into the future. You're not regretting or resenting the past. That's good, receiving nowness. And then third, uh, opening into allness, all right? Um, that has to do with the sense of relaxing me, myself, and I somewhat, kind of relaxing the contracted feeling of self, abiding more as a person. You're a person. Okay, it's fine. Keep on going. But without that sense of possessiveness or narcissistic injury, it's called. And also, people can have more of a feeling of that they're part of a vast process. And then last, finding timelessness. Uh, you can do it that in a super secular way with a feeling for spaciousness, stillness, uh, possibility. In other words, that which is relatively stable, relatively enduring, sort of like the sky that's relatively enduring, through which clouds pass. Mm. Right? You can feel that same way kind of about your mind. And I think in us all is the capacity for an intuition of that spaciousness, stillness, and possibility. And for those who are so inclined, as, as I am, and you know, it's the only part of the book where I go here, you, know, you might have a sense of some kind of perhaps mysterious, ultimate quality of timelessness uh, through which the time passes within our ordinary Big Bang universe. Mm. So these are the four additional practices building on the first three of steadying the mind, warming the heart, and resting in fullness. So you refer to those four practices in the book, wholeness, nowness, allness, timelessness, as aspects of awakening. For people who maybe aren't so familiar with that language, what did you mean by that? Yeah. Awakening is a loose and broad term. Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, well, it means, as Sam Harris titled his book, uh, which received wide acclaim, uh, Waking Up, mm -hmm. rather than sleepwalking away through life on mm -hmm. automatic, carried along by habits and being swept along inside your own mind by one reaction or another. So we, we wake up from the spells cast by Mother Nature, which, um, you know, for good purposes back in the Stone Age or in Jurassic Park, try to make us over-worry about things and also tend to make us really sucked into various pleasures mm. that may not be very good for us over the long haul. So we try to wake up from those spells. And in the broadest sense, we awaken, really, to the good news that was always already true, which gets obscured 
by ignorance and delusion and the veils of sort of the ordinary conventional mind, we kind of wake up to realizing, wow, underneath it all, each one of us is a fundamentally wise, wakeful, loving being. It might be covered over. It might be really, really covered over. But deep down inside us all, I think that's our true nature. And we can wake up to it. We can also wake up to the good news that that's the case in other people. And we can even wake up to, perhaps ultimately, that uh, the universe itself is whole. As the universe, it's not a problem, even though it contains many things within it. And even, maybe, wake up to what's beyond it all. I could have used other terms that Mm. were more religious, like God realization or being saved or becoming a saint, uh, or even the word enlightenment. And I del- or technically in Buddhism, there are terms like arahant mm-hmm. uh, that I've deliberately steered away from, or bodhisattva, uh, to something that's much more universal, I think, which is really a fundamental aim of the book. I'm interested in the universal process of awakening, mm-hmm. or which I mean moving up the mountain of the highest happiness. Right. In other words, if we kind of define a metaphorical mountain as uh, in terms of the fulfillment or perfection of steadiness of mind, lovingness of heart, fullness of being, a sense of contentment and equanimity and all the rest, if we say that, okay, that's the mountain of awakening, there are many routes to the summit. On each of them, though, I think we find these same seven ways of being, these same practices. We grow them by practicing them. We find the seven ways of being in, in, in all of those different roots. And so for me, I wanted to talk about the universal process of moving up the mountain. I happen to know the Buddhist route pretty well, particularly as grounded in the original teachings of the Buddha, but it's not the only way up the mountain. And these seven steps are universal. They're not Buddhist or Christian or atheist. They're universal, and anyone can use them. So one of the phrases of yours that I'm most familiar with personally, and you actually just used it a second ago, is the phrase, the front edge of now. It's a uh, pocket phrase of yours that you bust out in all variety of occasions, uh, some of which are appropriate, some radically not so. And uh, for the people who may be less familiar with language like that, what the heck does that mean? What? (laughs) Well, by front edge of now, it's my kind of poetic way of describing the experience that's available to us when we come right into the present moment experientially. And in the book, I talk about some of the amazing neurology of how that present moment experience is being constructed right now continuously by the brain. And even consider what's the relationship maybe between that subjective experience of immediacy, the immediacy of the emergence of of what is arising. And what is the relationship between that and the objective, objective moment in the universe of the creation of new time? So I just kind of like that idea of the front edge. And it's a little bit like experientially, as, as experiences occur, it's almost like consciousness is sort of a windshield and we're sort of Mm. moving through time or time Mm -hmm. is moving through us. And so for a lot of people, they spend most of the seconds of their days not in the present. They're doing mental time travel. They're Mm. imagining a future, Mm -hmm. they're planning, they're thinking, 
or they're ruminating about the past, even if they're doing tasks, you can be doing emails or doing the dishes while thoroughly in the present, most people don't tend to live there. Mm. And when you come into the present, you move closer and closer to that leading edge of consciousness. And um, that's what I mean by the front edge of now. Hmm. So what are the, I mean, you've kind of alluded to it there for a second when you said that most people are not actually in the present moment. I think that the way that most people would sort of think about that is through the lens of mindfulness. Mm. Of, I mean, a lot of kind of secular mindfulness is based on this fundamental idea of, okay, we're just going to focus on the present moment. Yeah. And by focusing on the present moment, somehow all things will be made better. Right. Somehow. Through Magically. this kind of mysterious, oh, I just do <laughs> mindfulness. It'll make it better. Um, kind if of you're process. in the present moment, mm -hmm. banging your foot with a hammer, that's not going to help. Not, not so great, right? Exactly. So that's kind of one of the things I want to point to the here. other person's foot. Yeah. So what's the benefit of nowness for actual kind of real life happiness? It's what do you a, get out of it? It's a great question. Yeah. And one great thing about you, Forrest, partly because you're kind of new to this territory, because <laughs> you ask these really uh, good questions. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, you hear the phrase, be here now or the power of now and so forth. Um, well, why? <laughs> you know, especially if now hurts, why wouldn't I want to take my mind as far away from it as sure, I possibly yeah. can, mm -hmm. including by thinking about Fun things I did in the past or might do in the future. Mm. Exactly right. Well, for sure, it's helpful to disengage from, you know, the immediate arising of the moment uh, if you've got to think about some things. That's okay. I mean, there's a place for that. On the other hand, when we're doing that, when we have those plates spinning, often they're kind of stressful or worrying or irritating mm. or hurtful. And if we get obsessed in the plate spinning, we're going to hang out in a lot of suffering. And then we're going to tend to do stuff that affects other people as well. On the other hand, neurologically, when we come close to the immediacy of the present moment, operationally, that means we're being alerted. That's a term, alerting. Something new, something has happened. We don't necessarily know where it is or even what it is and certainly don't know what to do about it and what our personal relationship is. Mm. We just know something new. And you can think about these circuits as a result of um, the evolution of extremely simple creatures like a, like a slug in the backyard or a crab or kind of moving up the ladder, a frog, a lizard, a human, right? So something has changed. That sense, something has changed. Something new has landed. When we do that, that reduces activity in the circuitry of the brain that's been spinning, spinning those plates. Mm, mm -hmm. Those go offline. And what surges forward is the immediacy of the present moment. Now, back in the jungle, that was really, really useful. Instead of spacing out while you're walking down the trail, suddenly there's a crackle of a twig nearby. What is that? What should we do about it? You know, that's a really, really useful thing. What's cool is that if we can stay closer and closer and train in that feeling of alerting, when a very natural, normal circuit in the brain gets engaged mm. and surges forward in effect, kind of brushing aside the other systems of attention that are more task-oriented and more ruminative by their very nature, when that thing surges forward, we're not suffering in that moment. Mm. We're dealing with the new thing. Everything else is pushed to the side. And as we abide there, we rest increasingly in A, less suffering, and B, more sense of delight mm. and novelty and freshness. It's a little bit like consciousness, to use a different analogy, 
It's like a stream of water coming forward from a mountain at a spring. I've seen these kind of bubbling out of a cleft, you know, the side of a cliff. Mm-hmm. And it's it's remarkable. That's the fresh water just ugh, emerging into the air moment by moment by moment. I mean, that's kind of the feeling of consciousness emerging moment by moment by moment. And the closer you get to that emergence, there's, there's just some sense of awe and mystery and delight that comes with you when you're hanging out there. And you can feel that around people who are really, really far along. They're in the present. They're dealing with it. They're not caught up in the past. They're not caught up in the future. And they have a kind of childlike quality. Hmm. If you'll indulge me, I'll tell you a quick story. True story from a monk um, told by, you know, from a monk in Southeast Asia. And it, and basically, this was a elderly monk in a monastery, a lot of poverty, not much money, no dental care, living very simply on one meal a day. And he developed a tooth that needed to be pulled. Mm. So he thought, well, darn, I guess I better pull this myself. And so he went to the tool shed in the monastery, picked up a pair of pliers or something, reached in and pulled his tooth. And this other monk said later with him, talking with him about it, wow, that must have been horrible. You must have been so upset. Like, how did you deal with that? And so the senior monk, who had pulled his own tooth, said, well, as I was lifting my left foot, taking a step toward the tool shed, there was no suffering. As I was lifting my right foot, taking a step toward the tool shed, in that moment, there was no suffering. Left foot, right foot, no suffering. As I opened the door to the shed, in that moment, there was no suffering. There was no pain. When I reached for the pliers, there was no pain. As I placed them around my tooth, there was no pain. As I pulled the tooth, there was pain. For the few breaths after I pulled the tooth, there was still pain. And then as I set the pliers down, there was less and less pain. And then in the moment as I reached for the door to walk out of the tool shed, there was no pain. And then I walked back to the meditation hall. That's someone who's really in the moment Mm -hmm. and paying no more than a minimal necessary price in this embodied animal life. Yeah, one of the things, one of the phrases that you use in the book around that concept is you refer to it as before suffering, which I think is really interesting. It's an interesting way to frame it. This idea that a lot of the things that um, happen to us that cause us to feel pain, yeah, we feel pain through our reaction to them yeah. rather than through the actual experience of them. Of yeah. course, this isn't true for a physical ailment, pulling your own tooth, whatever it might be. But for many, many parts of the human experience, it's about what sets in after the moment or our reaction to it or all of the orbiting of it that we do that actually brings us suffering. Yeah. Yeah, that's really well said. Hmm. There's a model in Buddhist psychology that sort of deconstructs the stream of consciousness into five fundamental elements, major threads, we could say, of the fabric of consciousness. I'll just quickly go through them. Mm -hmm. The first one is called form. It's sort of like bare sensory stimuli. You know, there is a sound, there is pain, there is this, there is that. Second, there is what's called the hedonic tone of that experience. Is it pleasant or unpleasant? Do I like it? Do I dislike it? Or is it neutral? And neither of those. Third, perception. What is it? How do I categorize it? Uh, What does it mean? Um, How does it, you know, relate to memory I have of similar things? That's the so-called aggregate, it's called. It's a funny word of perception. Then come what are called the formations. This is everything else. All our thoughts, all our emotions, all our feelings, 
um, desires, you know, fantasies, personality tendencies, you know, Myers-Briggs type, the whole Mishigas. And then there's the fifth aspect of consciousness, which is the um, aspect of awareness. Hmm. All right. So in effect, uh, awareness is relatively continuous and through which there arise and then pass away form, feeling, or hedonic tones, um, perception, and the, the rest of it all called the formations. Well, here's the scoop. In bare form, in bare sensory stimuli, particularly with perception, knowing what it is, even with a little bit of the hedonic tone, there's not much suffering. There's very little sense of self in just that where we get caught up in our sorrows and our angers, our resentments, our quarrels, our, our addictive fantasies, where we get caught up in all that, we're in the formations. So if we can just kind of hang out, and the formations occur later in the processing stream. Mm -hmm. When there's a stimulus, there is at first initially just form, followed within a second or two with perception and hedonic tone, and then a second or two later, the formations start getting active, our various reactions, as you said a moment ago to that. So if we can hang out closer to the emergent moment as it arises continuously, we're kind of hanging out before our brain has had time to get all caught up in reactions to what has happened. In effect, it's passed on by. It's been, it's been dislodged. Uh, whatever just happened has been dislodged in this moment by what is now happening. Right, uh, and so it's it's harder and harder to get up, get caught up in all that stuff. So you just feel better and better, and you're more able to function in the present. So moving on from nowness to some combination of allness and timelessness, uh, to bring people behind the curtain for one second, I was a, a late reader of the book, I suppose you would say, in your in editing one process. Of my best ones. Yeah, um, and I read the last three chapters a couple months before it went in for like final, final, final revisions where yeah. we couldn't change anything ever again. And uh, I ran into a series of paragraphs that really kind of stopped me in my tracks and my brain sort of short-circuited and I had to reread it several times. So I'm going to highlight those here because I still can do my best to learn about it. You refer to both the mind and the brain and to a degree, the self in the book is being quote unquote empty. Okay. I suspect that if people decide to acquire this book, which is available May 5th, no plug, um, they will run into that phrase and be like, wait, what? So maybe you could just kind of walk people through it. Uh, Cause I think that by the time that, in the moment where I got an understanding of it, it all made good sense to me, but prior to that, it was pretty challenging. So what do you mean by the mind and the brain as empty? Yeah, so first let me say that what I've tried to do in this book, in a very respectful way, is to um, integrate and translate and apply the most cutting edge neuroscience mm. for a general audience. And in the same way, I've tried to draw on the deepest wisdom uh, I've experienced in my life, which has been a pretty long life of you know, practice at this point, particularly from the Buddhist tradition, which has had the most intersection with science because it kind of shares common values of empiricism and even pragmatism. Uh, but I'm very open to the wisdom from other traditions. Mm -hmm. And from my knowledge of those, uh, you know, Christianity, Hinduism, a little bit of Islam, a little bit of Judaism, as well as something of the shamanic or first people traditions around the world. What I'm writing about in the book is consistent with them as well. Because as I've said, 
there's just one mountain of awakening. There's just one summit. There are many routes up it, but there's essentially one summit and different routes converge on the summit. So in that context, I think it's okay to come across ideas or even words or sentences that we just chew on. There are statements I've come across, I came across 40 years ago, that I'm still chewing on them. It's okay that people need to slow down a little bit. And I think sometimes in our, you know, tell me now, tell me now, tell me now, I don't have time for more world, we've got to realize that these, these teachings are profound and they've occupied millions and millions of people throughout history because they're enormously rich and they, they reward a lifetime of engagement. So it's okay if it's a little challenging. That said, empty. Okay, so empty, for those who know, um, is a way of talking about the Sanskrit term shunyata, which many people consider to be the Buddha's really greatest contribution. I'm not so sure because I think he also made a few other contributions, but you know, it's pretty important to pay attention to. So what is it? It's this basic observation. If you watch your own experiences directly, you don't need any kind of mystical or meditative training. You can observe that your experiences are continually changing. Mm-hmm. Fair? Well, let me ask you a question for us. Are your experiences continually changing? Yeah. Can You totally. can see that. Mm-hmm. I'm not making you say it. No, I mean, I think everyone's experiences are continually changing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Are your experiences made of parts? Are there different aspects to them? There's the hearing part, there's the seeing part, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they're made of parts. Third, do your experiences, this gets a little deeper, have absolute existence of their own? You know, or are they occurring based on causes of various kinds? Do they occur be, because of various factors out in the world. In so I, I touch a stove, my hand feels yep. hot, I pull it away. Yep. The existence of the heat was because I touched the stove. Yep. Is that what you're kind Yeah, of... exactly right. Yeah. Or a different mm-hmm. way of putting it. Just, you know, this moment of consciousness, just what you're thinking about, is uh, the result of what you were thinking about um, just a few moments ago. Yeah, a determinism to an extent. Yeah, determinism. Sure. Mm-hmm. It follows on. Yeah. Okay. The term for that technically is interdependence. Mm-hmm. So we have these three clear characteristics of all experiences. They are impermanent, they're transient. They are um, compounded, they're made of many, many parts. You can keep deconstructing them further and further. It's sort of like consciousness is pixelated mm-hmm. down to some very, very small parts. And then they are also interdependently arising. Okay, based on all that, clearly, they are empty of absolute essence. Our experiences are empty of absolute self-creating essence. Mm -hmm. They're part of the unfolding of the natural universe. Okay, thank you, Captain Obvious. Yeah, it's like, what what makes them empty then? Like, what does that mean? The word is used as empty. We could maybe use a different term. Mm. We could say simply that they lack. It is mm-hmm. of their nature to lack because their nature is impermanent, compounded, and interdependent. They lack absolute self-causing substance, and self-causing yeah. mm-hmm. existence, mm-hmm. and that actually has some pretty far-reaching implications. Mm. Because when you start to recognize that your positions, your views, your feelings your ideas, 
your plans, your pleasures, your sorrows, all lack solidity and essence. They are like clouds rather than bricks. They come, they go. As soon as you try to hold on to them, they slip away between your fingers. As, as you recognize that nature they have, it moves you naturally into some good places of being less attached, kind of less serious about your own mind. You take it less seriously. By extension, you know, the way I put it is, my thoughts are not my own. You know, this thought is the universe acting locally, whatever this thought is in this moment. And it's important to avoid the pitfall that this recognition of what's true can take you into the pitfall being that, oh my gosh, uh, despair, nihilism, yeah. what's the point? You want to steer clear of that. Your experiences are occurring. New ones are arising. It's okay to be aware of their impermanence. It's okay to realize that uh, who you are uh, is not a um, brick standing on its own, but you're much more like a wave in the sea. Mm, now, hopefully mm -hmm. it's a, an 80, 90, even 100-year wave, but eventually it will pass away as all waves do. And meanwhile, as Jamal Yogis puts it, all our waves are water. We are really the universe operating locally moment after moment after moment. And it's really profound to get that again and again and again and again. And it slowly moves from a kind of conceptual, yeah, you, you believe it, you see it, to something that more and more you feel or can get in touch with if you want to. And then more and more just becomes, as it is actually for me increasingly, and I'm still working on it, uh, just kind of your background state of being, which helps you be more adaptable when life changes because you're not so shocked by those other waves happening. You're more fluid. You're more fluid. You're more flexible. You're, and you also have access to more, more moves in the game of life. You become more nimble when you have this kind of orientation. Uh, when you also recognize that things that seem burdensome, like different tasks, they are empty of um, solidity. They're empty of substance. So that's a good thing. And it's also true, remarkably, this is where neuroscience is pretty helpful, hmm. that your brain, you know, in other words, the, the processes in the brain that are the basis for this moment of experience are also, by observation directly through MRIs and other things, they are also continually changing. Brain activity is extremely dynamic. It's impermanent. Whoa. Also, it's made up of so many parts. It, for example, uh, if you give people, various questions that have to do with the contrast between self and other, right? So what's your name? What's his name? Uh, you know, of all these faces, which one is you? Which one is them? Mm. Or what do you think about an important moral question like capital punishment, yes or no? What's your position on that? Whatever it might be, uh, the neurological activations that so-called light up based on those self-referential questions or processing are all over the brain. Hmm. There's no place in the brain. We can all feel very special, but there's no place in the brain that's special for hmm. the construction of the experience of, of self, moment after moment after moment. And also whatever's happening in the brain is interdependent. So we have those three characteristics again of the apparent self in the brain of impermanence, compoundedness, and interdependence. In other words, the underlying 
neurological basis for the feeling of being me is also empty mm. of essence or absolute self-generating substance. And the value of that fundamentally in for 99.9% .9 of people who are not currently in a monastery yeah. um, in terms of interacting as a quote-unquote householder, to use the Buddhist language, um, out in real life yeah. and dealing with the cars and the trucks that are around yeah. you, which you might view as empty and open <laughs> and not having any substance, but you should probably not change your lane into Yeah, them. yeah, don't step in yeah. front of that bus. Um, they're existent. Yeah, they're existent, but they're quote-unquote empty. They're yeah. not uniquely arising of their own formation. They're based on a long series of causes and conditions that led to a truck being there in that moment, to use a kind of metaphor for it. In terms of... And what that does is it takes you into lightening up. Yeah, okay. Getting less attached to your own, you know, stuff and appreciating process. Like, mm. for example, this body. Uh, it seems so solid. Like, I look at you and you had a little more muscle than you did a year ago, but that's you, uh, pretty much. On the other hand, most of the atoms that I'm looking at right now were mm -hmm. not in your body a year ago. Yeah. That's weird, mm -hmm. yes, but it's true. Mm -hmm. Obviously, any and all of them that had to do with water, 70% uh, of the body. The, the ship, of, ship of Thebes, ship of Thesis, ship of, do you, do you know what I'm referring to? God, I, oh man, I'm so sad that I can't, all right, Bust well, that this, out. Is gonna, this is going to shame me, so I want to look it up before I actually say it, but okay, so there's this, I, I'm going to butcher this just so everybody knows, but you probably know what I'm referring to at this point if you know the parable that I'm talking about, but there's this Greek parable, which is I think called the ship of Thesis or the ship of Thebes or something like that, where a ship sets out from a port. And it travels around the ocean. And over the course of that voyage, every piece on the ship is replaced. Yep. Every deck slat is pulled up and replaced. The mast is replaced. The, the, uh, the sails are replaced. Everything's replaced. Yes. And yet that same ship lands back in harbor a year later. Is it the same ship? <laughs> I, that is so great that you busted that out. Yeah, it, yeah. it's kind of an existential question, right? Yeah. It's that whole, yeah. I, I have no idea if this is true or not, so I'll fact check myself. Uh, in the show notes for this, but there's the saying that like every seven years or something, something. your entire body replaces itself atomically or in terms of the um, molecules in it or something. Again, I'll fact check myself on that one, but now, that's what people say. Technically, amidst the 600 or so reference notes in the book, mm. I actually sourced that. Okay, so there you go. Can Fantastic. check that out All right. in the detail of that yeah. and the questions about it. But the bottom line yeah, clearly is- Yeah, it's a wild thing most, to think about. Yeah. Certainly most of the atoms in our body mm -hmm. are replaced within a year. Yeah, wild. Yeah. But And again, like to your point about the kind of continuous experience of self- Yeah. I have a wildly different sense of myself as a human, like what it means to be forest, mm -hmm. than I did five years ago, let, it le let alone 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Mm. And so that fundamental question of like, okay, but what's the through line? Right. I think it's a really challenging one to wrap our arms around yeah. and might be one sort of practice to help people drop into that sense of quote unquote not self mm -hmm. or that sense of, as you're saying, uh, emptiness yeah. to the nature of self. Yeah. Because I, I would hope for most people listening or watching that they too have the experience of being a distinctly different self than they were 10 years ago. Yeah. And if that's the case, then there must be something fundamentally quote unquote empty 
about the self. There must be something about it that is changeable and unreliable and inconsistent. And I think to the broader point you're making here, it really does help us ground our feelings, our opinions, our decisions, or whatever in that broader context of openness and impermanence and just being kind of a little bit more, um, as you said, lightly holding of the whole thing. Yeah, so I have a kind of a question for you. And yeah, sure. I, I wonder about this with people in general. Mm. So someone might fear or think that, oh, well, this this way of looking at oneself in this more impersonal way, in effect, it might be alarming. It might take one yeah, totally. into something psychotic even. Mm-hmm. And what I've observed, and I wonder what your experience of this is, as people move in this direction, and I have observed you, Moving in this direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that as people recognize themselves more in this way, when they see themselves in this more fluid way, in an amazing way, it draws them into more care and tenderness and gratitude. Tenderness in their dealings with themselves, gratitude for existence, more of a felt sense of their own fragility, the remarkableness of just this moment of all the causes in the universe swirling together. There's something really sweet about it. And I just kind of wondered if you've tuned into that yourself. Hmm. Well, it's a really interesting way to frame it. The The short answer is yes. The longer answer is probably a little more complicated. In short, I think that it's kind of like the sand art paintings that you see the monks do in monasteries, okay. right? Yeah. Yeah. Where they'll do these beautiful, elaborate uh, paintings with sand, uh, different colored sand, and they'll create these incredible uh, images. And then when they're done, they'll look at it for a little while. And then after a little while, they sweep it up and all the sand goes away. Yeah. You know, it's a beautiful teaching on the nature of impermanence. And I do think that there is something about the fully felt recognition that time is limited and self is finite, Mm. that draws you into more of an appreciation for the time that you have and the self that you have. And that coupled with a little bit more light holding of view does tend, I think, to nudge people dispositionally into more of a stance of kindness and softness and and Mm. openness as opposed to dogmatism of various kinds. Well, that's good. Yeah, hey, I would like to think so, you know. It's funny, like right now where we are, I'm looking out the window, a storm has recently passed through Mm. and I'm seeing some big, big, beautiful clouds. And I kind of think that if you realize that you're like a cloud, Mm. delicate, changing, dynamic, coming into being, vulnerable, dependent on so many things, you're just gonna be more careful Mm. with it than if you regard yourself, let's say, as like I said, like a brick, that's here for a while until it keels over. It's a wonderful reflection. I think that it's totally true. As a final little comment, for me, part of it was about that openness and spaciousness and changingness, for lack of a better way of putting it, gave me more permission fundamentally to let go of things, broadly speaking, that were no longer serving me. Whether that be elements of personality, beliefs about myself, ways of orienting toward other people, I didn't have to defend those positions anymore 
because there was something about changing my behavior that felt like an admission of guilt mm. for prior behavior. And once that had been kind of sacrificed at that the altar. That is really interesting. I think yeah. it's really true. And I think it bounds the behavior of a lot of people. I yeah. think that they feel like changing now is a confession that they should have changed earlier. Right. It's like admitting fault. Yeah. And that's Rather extremely than embracing painful. that you're on the learning team. Absolutely. Yeah. Good for you. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. But like so often we don't experience it that way for a wide variety of reasons. So. That's my final thought on this. Unfortunately, we have to bring it to a close for the please, moment. Please, please, please. I know we can please. keep on talking can forever. Can I say one more thing really fast? <laughs> you have one word that you oh, want to say. Okay, just one thing really fast. Well, it's just really briefly as to your point. You know, I remember I worked with a person a long time ago uh, who was a real type A driving, mm. uh, you know, rich guy. And he had, of course, a super tricked out Range Rover with every you know, bobble it could possibly hold. And on the uh, bumper sticker, he had uh, the saying, he who dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I can see why your marriage is going down the drain, brother. Uh, yeah, Which seriously. it did. For myself, I think the person who learns the most wins. Hmm. That's the opportunity. And that kind of fluidity that you're talking about and flexibility and willingness to get the lesson and then move on to the next way of being is the person who's going to do the best in this life. Mm. Well, I think it's a great point. I totally agree with you. And I think it's a wonderful note to end this episode on. Great. So again, the book is Neurodharma. It comes out on May 5th. It's currently available for pre-order. And I've included a link to purchase the book if you would like to in the description of today's podcast. Uh, it's truly a great book, and there are no favorite children, and there are also no favorite books. But you know, to me, my experience of you is that this might be your favorite book out of the ones that you've written. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I hope that you all enjoy it. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd also like to remind you about our Patreon account. If you go to beingwellpodcast, or sorry, patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast, uh, you can subscribe and become a patron. I put together a whole bunch of bonus content for our patrons. It's been great to create that community. And for the price of just a couple of cups of coffee a month, uh, you can support the podcast and know that you are enabling us to continue to produce all of this content and get it all out there completely free of charge. So as one final request, if you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it. If you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even tell a friend about it, it really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.